Hey everybody, Steve here with Local Level Podcast. I'm sitting here today with Stacy Calamaris, founding partner. Is it partner? Yes. Founding partner of uh, Calamaris Law Office. Yes. You're an intellectual property attorney and uh, advertising specialist as well? Yeah. Um, IP and uh, so trademark, copyright, and advertising law are my areas of focus. And, you know, you, we had a conversation beforehand. You have many different careers that you went through. A couple. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it ties it all together, what you're doing right now. So with a specialty in advertising, but let us, uh, if you can, tell, tell the audience how you got your start. Sure. So uh, my first career was as a marketing and advertising executive. So mm -hmm. I worked for a number of multinational corporations here in Chicago. And uh, I also worked for uh, Miller Brewing oh, wow. in, in Milwaukee, which it's kind of sad what just happened last week. Yeah, that's true. Oh, wow. Up there. So um, you were actually up there. Was that where you worked? That is exactly where I worked. Yeah. Oh, my God. Not in the plant, but in the executive offices of, of Miller before um, they were they were acquired. So Wow. Um, so that was before the acquisition. So they were they were owned by uh, Kraft and Philip Morris at the time that I worked there, and then they were sold mm. to a South American, um, I'm sorry, South African concern called SAB, okay. and then SAB sold them to Coors. So that's sort of the um, the timeline there. So that was about 20 years ago. I, wor wow. I worked there just uh, for about six months before I went to law school. So mm -hmm. if you just sort of sort of see it through, when I um, when I originally graduated from college, I thought I always wanted to be a lawyer when I was a kid. But yeah. when you see lawyers on TV, you see um, prosecutors and you see defense attorneys, right? Yeah. And maybe criminal stuff, right? And maybe you know a divorce attorney or maybe you know a real estate attorney, but that's that's kind of it. That was my world. So mm -hmm. I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. I thought I wanted to put bad guys away. Right. And uh, when I graduated from college, I prepared to go to law school. I took the test. It's called an LSAT to mm -hmm. get into law school. And I was accepted and I was ready to go. Um, but I was working as a receptionist for a small law firm in Northbrook. And um, I saw how the women there were treated, not by their male colleagues, not by the other lawyers, but by the clients. Wow. Um, so I was a receptionist. So I greeted everyone. I let um, the other attorneys know who was here to see them. Mm -hmm. And there was one client in particular. He was in a lot of tax trouble. And the managing partner was trying to sort of calm him down and get him to the right person to help him. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that one of the there were two female partners in the firm. I think there were five or six partners in that firm. And one of the female partners was an expert in tax law. Okay. And so this managing partner said to this gentleman, you know, look, I'm going to pass you off to my partner so-and-so. And the client was just arguing with him. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, 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 no. I don't want her. I don't want her. And they're sitting like maybe eight, 10 feet away from me. He's like, when are you free? I'll come back. And he's literally clutching his, wow. you know, jewel paper bag full of receipts. He was in serious trouble with the IRS. Oh. It wasn't just to prepare his tax return. He was being audited or he was being, you know, um, a um, accused of certain You would think that issues. he'd be willing to take anybody's help at that point, right? Or I mean, the person who was who was capable <laughs> of assisting him, yeah. right? And so the managing partner said, no, look, Joe, or whatever his name mm -hmm. was, if I were in trouble, I would want her to help me. Yeah. And so I'm seeing all this play out over about 10 minutes, and it's the summer. I'm going to go to law school that fall. And I had just graduated from college, and I went home to, you know, to my parents' house that night. Sure. And I said to my mom, I said, you won't believe the craziest thing that happened. I mean, I believed the Virginia Slims commercial, right? I believed <laughs> we had come a long way, baby. And yeah. clearly we, we hadn't. And so um, that's how I sort of begged off a of law school. I, I asked my dad, you know, that I told my dad I wasn't ready to go. Yeah. And so he's like, well, then you better go get a job. What do you want to do? And I just knew I wanted to work in sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what brand management was. That came later for me. Right, um, right. And I fell into this job. Um, I did various things in marketing communications and marketing and not really sales, but just sort of general marketing roles for small companies. 
And I had a marketing communications agency of my own in my early 20s because I was arrogant and I thought I knew better than everybody else. Of course, yeah. And then I fell into this role at the NutraSuite company and I started working with attorneys who do what I do now. Mm -hmm. And it was just eye opening for me. I had no idea what intellectual property law was. I had no idea what it meant to protect a brand from a legal perspective. And so I was 27 when I finally made my way to the NutraSuite company, and it was just really interesting to me. There were in-house attorneys, we had outside counsel, so I saw all these people making a living protecting brands from a legal perspective, and I just mm -hmm. got bit by the bug. What did you like about it most? Um, it was just, it was interesting to me. Um, I, I can't say for sure, but it was just fascinating because it was just very different from anything I had seen on TV. It was a way yeah. to be a corporate lawyer, um, but also I really liked marketing. And so it was a way really to be kind of a the creative part. Yeah, too. a lawyer that really protected brands. Yeah. But I was having such a great time in my marketing career. I think I, I just I asked all these lawyers all these questions. And for me, it was really interesting. But I just wanted to learn everything that I could. So right, right. because I was on my way to law school, I had this very sort of traditional liberal arts um, education in political science and philosophy. And so when I started at the NutraSuite company, I um, went to school part-time for my MBA to mm. bolster my business education. Sure. Um, and then I just reached a point, you know, Miller was many years later, that was sort of the, the end of my marketing career. I knew I was going to law school then, so I was just biding my time. That was about 12 or 13 years later. Mm -hmm. But I just reached a point throughout my career. I worked for the NutraSweet company. I worked for Alberto Culver. I worked for a German candy company called Stork. People probably know their brands called Werther's Original and Reason okay. Chocolate Chew and Mamba and Toffee Fay and all sorts of those fun brands. Sure. And then I moved to Milwaukee because I, I was working for an advertising agency and I worked on the Bird's Eye Frozen Vegetable business and some other smaller brands. Was that, um, weren't they one of the first people to make the TV dinner? Was it Bird's Eye? Or who? Swanson. Swanson, okay. Yeah. Okay. But I think they may have teamed up with Bird's Eye. Yeah, I know there's some sort of there connection there. There may have been some co-branding. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. you may be right. Yeah, yeah. I, Vaguely remember reading a story about that. That, that could that could very well be. Yeah. Um, so we landed the bird's eye business. I was part of the um, leading. I was part of the team that helped bring that business into the agency from a promotional standpoint. Mm -hmm. My um, my area of focus as a brand manager was really on the promotion side. So all those coupon inserts you see in the Sunday newspaper. Right, right. Um, and any sort of on-pack promotions, that was really my area of focus as a marketing manager. And when I worked for Stork, the candy company, I was the general manager of our business in Puerto Rico. So I, I helped launch all of our um, brands in Puerto Rico, which was a really interesting experience to for me. To see it in a smaller scale? Yeah, kind of so I was really, I really was um, helping to sell, and I called on Walmart in Puerto Rico in, yeah. con in connection with our um, national accounts manager there, and I worked with our distributor, and so I did more than marketing. I was really yeah, kind of a yeah. little mini general manager of the whole um, island, which was a lot of fun for me. Uh, it was an interesting skill set. That was a super fun company I can imagine. to work for. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, I mean, whenever you're in, if you're doing it in the in the United States itself, that's such a huge exactly. area. Exactly. When you can kind of drill in at a smaller, just an island, basically. Yeah. Um, that has to be, you know, a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot of fun, and it was yeah. it was a really interesting experience for me. But I just I, I think I reached this point. Most brand managers really love the advertising side. They like mm -hmm. the shooting commercials. Right. They love kind of the sexiness of all of that. For me, I didn't enjoy that. Yeah. I loved the business end. I loved forecasting. I loved um, budgeting. The numbers. I, uh, you I like loved the numbers. The numbers. I okay. liked the analytical end. Okay. A lot. Yeah. And I found myself there's kind of this natural tension between sale. I'm sorry, between marketing and legal. Mm -hmm. And of the marketers don't like the legal department. They sort of view them as killjoys. Yeah. And, I want to use whatever song I want. Right. right exactly. <laughs> and I found myself siding with legal all the time. Wow. And um, 
um, I found myself being the voice of legal in mm. all of these meetings as we were developing either new line extensions or new brands. And my uh, my colleagues depended on me, right? Mm -hmm. They knew that I was sort of the liaison between marketing and legal. So when there was a question, they would say, hey, Stacey, what's that rule again? I didn't really know what the rule was. I mean, let's be honest, I wasn't a lawyer at that point. But I you knew where to find it, though. I, well, I was I was the person who routed everything through legal. So mm -hmm. I understood what their direction to us was. I certainly did not know the rules. But um, in in team meetings and cross functional meetings, my colleagues would depend on me to sort of relay that information back. So would you say that you kind of could speak the language? You were the legal whisperer to them? No, or? I think understanding where I am now, I think I was functioning more as a as a paralegal. Okay. Um, uh, uh, now looking back and understanding now what I know sure. and how I was functioning, uh, I was functioning more probably like a, a paralegal mm -hmm. um, because I was I was really that that liaison that bridge between marketing and and legal and mm. trying to really make things more efficient so that our in house lawyers especially were not spending so much time uh, reviewing mundane things. Mm. But so after about you know. 10 or 11 years, a Stork was sort of my last very senior position on the brand side. And I was like, well, I think I need a change. And so my change came in moving agency side. I thought that was the change that I needed in my career. I was growing restless. I needed a new challenge. So I went agency side. So that's how I ended up on the advertising agency side and working on um, the bird's eye business. And, and that was fine. But that wasn't the change I needed. So mm. I sort of view that as the evolutionary step before right. the revolutionary step. Stone. Exactly. Yeah. And then we lost the bird's eye business at that particular agency almost as quickly as we got it. And mm. that was just because bird's eye was an interesting account. They were they were owned by a co-op of growers. And then shortly after we earned the business, the co-op decided to sort of sell themselves or divest themselves of the co-op. I didn't really understand how it all worked. And mm -hmm. with Within about eight months of earning the business, we lost it. Was there a, a reason that you can point to looking back, you know, in hindsight? I think it was just the ownership of how, how they structured it. Okay. So they were, again, I don't understand how co-ops work. <laughs> yeah. And so, mm -hmm. um, so for me in the role that I had now, the agency had huge advertising clients, but I was an, I was a, um, account executive, uh, an account director in the promotions group. We didn't have a large, a, a second largest client. So then I worked on a bunch okay. of little clients and I thought, you know what? I used to manage half billion dollar brands. Yeah, it wasn't. You were it, punching it, way below your weight. It, it, exactly. That's a really great way to phrase it. And I thought this isn't for me. Yeah. So um, I left. Um, I resigned. Mm -hmm. And I was like, now I wonder what's next. And in looking for what was next and trying to figure out what was next, there was a temporary position advertised at Miller. Oh, OK. Back and, to that. Right. Right. So that's how I got to Miller. And it mm -hmm. was just kind of a two week thing. But it it spawned into this larger assignment. And this was all before you actually went to law school. It is. So this is. Yeah. I mean, you just laid out a lot of different things. You picked up lots of experience before yes. you even got. Yes, um, exactly. You know, yeah. And so I had just and I had finished my MBA before mm -hmm. I moved to Milwaukee. So I had it took me forever. It took yeah. me almost five years. But so you I said had, you did that part time. Yeah. So I, I did that at night. So I earned my MBA in marketing. So at, much work. And then I moved to Milwaukee. So while I was at Miller, I started doing a lot of honestly, a lot of soul searching and honestly, a lot of career testing. Mm -hmm. And um, I was playing with a couple options and um, I I used to live in Palatine. I used to own a condo here, and I'd finally sold my condo here. And I was renting in Milwaukee, and I thought, well, I'm sitting on all these proceeds from my house. Mm -hmm. I don't know what am I going to do. I wasn't really sure I was going to stay in Milwaukee. I was thinking about moving back to Chicago. And so, again, all of this together, right, the soul searching, the career testing. When I took the career testing, it was very, very interesting um, a number of career options that I was considering sort of rose to the top with the results. And one of them was judge and lawyer. And because okay. that was something I had considered before, hmm. I thought, hmm, that's really, really yeah. interesting. So I retook the LSAT because your scores are only good for three years. Okay. I reapplied to law schools because I was living in Milwaukee. Marquette was one of the schools I applied to. And then I applied to a bunch of schools in Chicago. 
And the folks at Miller were like, if you go to Marquette, like maybe. We'll take care of it. No, that would have been great. But they're like, maybe you can work here part time. And I was like, you know what? My MBA just almost killed me. I don't think I want to do law school part time. It's too. That's so much. You know, well, it's just such a different experience. And it was too important to me because it was going to be a complete career change. And then I ended up coming back home and I went to John Marshall and they gave me a partial scholarship and was 34 when I started law school. So I was going to say, I mean, you know, this is, this was after, like you said, you had already been through so many different things and that had to take many years for you to get to the point where you were before you even changed careers. Yeah. So yeah, you, you were 37, you said, or I was 34 you, th- when I started 34. and 37 when I graduated. So I went full time. I gave up my career. Yeah. I knew I was going to go full time. So the sp- the partial scholarship was helpful. I was old enough to know that that was free money. I would never have to pay back. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I was fortunate. My college education was paid for by my parents. My MBA, for the most part, was paid for by my employers. Um, I had three classes that I ended up having to pay for myself because um, when I was at Stork, I was close to finishing and then I was just getting overwhelmed and I was close to quitting and I thought this is crazy. So before it was in vogue to actually quit a job yeah. uh, in 1999, I actually quit my job and took a sabbatical to finish my last three classes. And then I ended up moving to Milwaukee to go agency side. Hmm. So yeah. for the most part, my MBA was paid for by my employers, which I'm grateful for. But so huge. for me... Uh, I made the decision to invest in law school, which was a no-brainer because I was lucky enough to have my prior two degrees paid for. So what did you do? Because you said you took a sabbatical. There, Obviously, there had to be expenses. How, how many years? So you did four years of schooling for, your, for the law it's school? It's three years when you go part-time. Yeah. Okay. So I, um, I asked my parents. So I had sold my house before I moved to Milwaukee, and I was renting. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So I moved home. I asked my parents if I could live with them. I don't recommend adult children living no. with their parents. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. Um, but I did that for two years again, so I didn't have to take out loans for living expenses. My last year of law school, I did get a small apartment downtown. Mm-hmm. But for two years, I lived with my parents. And um, so living expenses, you know, food was taken care of. And then um, I applied for loans. It works much differently today, I understand, but you can get federal mm-hmm. loans and then private loans to close the gap. Sure. And yeah. um, then my last year, and then I had a summer job. Uh, well, between my first and second year's law school, I actually studied abroad. Oh, wow. Where I, at? Uh, in Argentina. Oh, wow. So I, um, I wanted to study abroad in undergrad, and my mom forbade me because mm. she thought I was following a boy to Spain. Uh-oh. So um, <laughs> I didn't have the opportunity to study in a Spanish-speaking country when I was an undergrad, and I thought, I'm a grown woman. No one's going to deny me this opportunity right, now. Yeah, right. And it was really quite an interesting experience because when you do it in law school, the um, classes are in English, but you are in class with um with native speakers. So I had Argentinian students in my class, but the instruction was in English. So you're learning the laws of the United States? No. So the courses international. Yeah, the courses I took were um, I took Latin American constitutional law. Oh, wow. I took um, Latin American human rights Hmm. and um, uh, Latin American um, commercial law. And this had to tie from the Puerto Rican uh, experience. It was. Some it, point. it was of interest to me. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, but I had Argentinian students in my class, and I chose to live with a host family. Mm. So I lived with a with a woman who was about my age, who had an eighteen year old son in college. Wow. So I ha- I want I wanted that experience of. Um, of, of having the full, full immersion. I wanted the experience that I was denied when I was 18. It was super, super fun. That's awesome. Yeah. That's and, a great story. Yeah. I, 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 I loved it. So that was my first summer. And then my second summer I worked, um, I didn't get like the big job, um, but I worked for a solo practitioner. So I earned a little bit of money and I also took classes to make my load a little bit lighter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I graduated with a lot of debt. I graduated with $150,000 worth of debt. Wow. A lot of kids graduate with two or more, $200,000 or more. Any of it. Yeah, that's, I mean. It's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. And um, yeah, 
So it's it's a true it's a true investment. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it, it really boils down to how you use it, what right. you make of it, right? Exactly. So I mean, if you think if you're looking back, uh, I I can't imagine that you. Um, feel like you didn't use it or do you feel like it was it was money well spent was it I do I do um so I I was very fortunate um so a couple of things happened to me along the way I was I would so there is ageism and there's sexism still in the law of course unfortunately for me while it would have been great to live in Milwaukee and work at Miller and have that kind of a salary while I was going to law school um, I wouldn't have been able to graduate in three years. So a part-time yeah. program is usually four years. Sometimes it takes people longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that, that that was a deal breaker for me because I knew I had to graduate before I was 40. 40 is a real critical number yeah. when you're a woman in, right. in the law. And I knew I had to do really, 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 really well. Yeah, you're working... I would imagine that when you're getting to that age range, you're competing against people that are at your age, but have more experience as opposed to. Well, you're competing against kids. I mean, when I was a first year associate, I mean, partners were my age colleagues. Okay. Right. So, I mean, when, you know, when you're 37 years old, if you go straight through, so if you go straight through, you're 26 when you graduate. Mm -hmm. So when you're 11 11 years later, your, you know, your, your partnership material, if you, you know, work at a, at a large law firm. So right, right. people who were my age were, were partners. They were, yeah. they were my bosses. They were my mm-hmm. contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, for me, it was just really critical not to defer the experience. And I knew I had to do really, really well. So I graduated with honors mm-hmm. from law school. That was really important to do as the very best that I could do to have the most opportunities available to me. Mm-hmm. Again, because I knew exactly what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to leverage my background in marketing and I wanted to leverage my MBA. So I knew I wanted to be an IP lawyer. Um, it's very difficult to to dictate what you want to do as a young lawyer. Most of the time you just, you know, you're a graduate and you say, well, so here I am, you know. Put, Who's ready to hire me? Yeah, put me to good use, law firm. Mm-hmm. And so the career services, um, the career services, offices in law school aren't really set up to deal with with people like me. And there are a fair, you know, a small percentage of us who had had prior careers who are very focused on what we want to do. And they're they're not really set up well to, to deal with people like us who are very focused. Yeah. So the advice I got wasn't great advice, you know. What was um, that? What advice did you get mostly? That I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't be focused in IP. Like it wasn't realistic. It wasn't you know. realistic, right, that I couldn't have, uh, that my resume could only be one page. And I was like, look, I've already been working for 12 years. No, it has to be one page. Well, that's impossible. It can't yeah. be. That's stupid. It's like throwing your experience out the window. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I, I interviewed with some uh, people who basically said, it's great to meet you. So I don't want to talk about any of this, mm-hmm. meaning my prior experience. So tell right. me about you. And I would stand up and say, it was really nice to meet you. Huh. Thanks so much. Um, I think the interview's over. And they're like, oh, no, 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 wait a second. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, everyone has this. I said, no, no one has this. So if you don't get that, then thank, you, thanks so much. And yeah. it was great to meet you. Do you think that they were looking at it as like, they didn't even want to hear it because it, it, maybe they looked at it like it was just padding on your resume? No, I just think they didn't understand. I think I was being discriminated against because really? I was a woman. Huh. Yeah, I do. Wow. Um, it's just a law is just an interesting it's just an interesting field. So for me, it took me a little bit to get back to your question about was it worth it? It was for sure worth it. But for me, it just took me a little bit longer to find my footing because I was so um, I was so focused. But mm. when I found the right place for me, it was absolutely the right place for me. It just right. it just took me a little bit longer. Well, you own it. It has to be a lot more rewarding when you when you get to do your own thing the way that you want to do it after all the hard work. Yeah. You, you know, you own it more. Yeah. As opposed to falling into something because you kind of just ended up there. Yeah. So there is a difference there that yeah. is uh, substantial, I would yeah. imagine. I mean, I started my career in in what we refer to as big law. So I worked for, you know, mm-hmm. one of the 
you know, largest law firms in the country. About 2% of lawyers end up working there. Yeah. And while I do consider myself very lucky, I worked really, really hard. Yeah, in it my sounds like it. three years of law school, I sent out over 500 resumes looking mm. for a job. So while you can say I was lucky, it didn't just fall in my lap. Right. It's it's I, hard work. I worked yeah. I worked I worked hard for that. And for a number of years I kept a file of every um cover letter and resume I sent out and every rejection letter I got. Wow. It, so what was the because everybody has a different answer for this. So was it was it something that um what was the what was the the takeaway when you looked at those files? What did you get from that? Did you get like ha ha see? You no, know, for me or, it was it was the marketer in me. So so it's a volume game, right? Okay, so yeah. any marketers in the audience know, right? Mm -hmm. Like a great a great response rate is like two percent. Yeah. Right. It's a law of averages. So it's like exactly right. So to any sort of direct mail piece, and I was sending resumes unsolicited. So these are so the resumes are receipts. Basically. Exactly. So you got the receipts to prove it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Makes and, sense. and also, you know, some of my colleagues were like, well, I mean, you know, you're so lucky, like that job just landed in your lap. And sometimes yeah. I would just throw my file at them and be like, really? Seriously? Yeah. Like, this is what you think is lucky? Mm -hmm. How many resumes did you send out this year? Wow. It wasn't luck. I no. mean, look, right? Whatever that saying is, is, you know, um, uh, luck is where hard work and opportunity intersect or sure. whatever that saying There's is. There's a lot of sayings. Right. <laughs> but I think that that's one. So yes, I do consider myself very fortunate, mm -hmm. but, but you worked for it though. I worked for it. I didn't, right. I didn't sit back. I did yeah. well in school. I, I did what I needed to do. I, you know, I, I scouted like every firm I possibly could. And I'm here to tell you, Steve, it was scary for me. I'm sure it was. You know, when when I turned my attention to D.C., because it was very clear to me that it just wasn't going to happen for me in Chicago, um, which okay. was sad because my first niece was born in my first year, second year of law school. I can't remember now. Uh, second year of law school. And I didn't want to leave her. Um, but it was clear that I had to, and one of my professors asked me if I had considered D.C., and somehow I missed the eighth grade field trip to D.C., so mm. I didn't know anything. I didn't have about, one of those either. So. Okay, I feel better now. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about D.C., and so when I went, I really, really liked it there. So when mm -hmm. I focused on D.C., things did come together kind of easily for me, and because my um, trademark and copyright professor had worked there, she sort of helped me connect with people and offer up suggestions. And everyone I spoke to had other suggestions. Mm -hmm. And once I focused on DC, it came together pretty quickly for me. Um, and there were a group of people that were really instrumental in helping me with my job search in DC. Do you think that, and I don't want to cut you off. No, you're fine. Do you think that the culture in DC is one that people are majority of the people are outsiders. People are not actual, you know, they're all transplants. Yeah. And there's so much turnaround with the political mm -hmm. cycles and things like that. Is that? I think, I think that could be part of it. Um, there's a strange kind of element in Chicago. Uh, and my professor explained it this way, and it's not that she's from here. It's just, she's a brainiac mm -hmm. because Chicago is part of the old industrial revolution. Yeah, yeah there's old, old roots. Well, it tends to be a patent heavy town. Okay. And I don't practice patent law. Oh. Wow. So IP is broken into three branches, patent law, trademark, and copyright. So okay. I practice trademark and copyright, but not patent. Hmm. And so a lot of the firms that have intellectual property groups in Chicago rely on their rely on their patent attorneys to do all three. Okay. In almost every other city, it's very distinct. And patent attorneys practice patent law, but you don't have to have a technical degree to do trademark and copyright. And in fact, you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, but Chicago is very tied to, if you want to be, it's changing, but slowly, even now, 15 years later. If you want to be an intellectual property attorney in Chicago, most firms think you must be an engineer hmm. to even do what I do now, which is just kind of preposterous. So that's an why an engineer though. So an engineer for that, what reason? Because that's that's who patent attorneys are. 
Okay, you got to explain that for me and for the audience. I, I'm not sure that I can. Okay. <laughs> so, but engineers, so engineers typically become patent attorneys. So that's the, that's the technical background that patent attorneys okay. have. And so Chicago historically, and again, it is changing, but slowly. In Chicago, historically, if you want to practice intellectual property law, even what I do, Chicago firms certainly 15 years ago would say, sorry, you mm. want to do trademark law, you have to be an engineer. And I would say, why? That wow. has nothing to do with brands. So that's so you're, you have the same question I do. So I was completely shut out right. of, the, of the Chicago IP market mm -hmm. because I wasn't an engineer. And it has nothing to do with trademark and copyright law. Yeah. It has yeah. everything to do with being a patent attorney. That's fine. Okay. Don't ask me to explain it because I don't know because patents <laughs> make my head spin. Okay. And I don't, I do nothing with patents. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I found DC much more um, friendly towards me. Mm. Um, and I found just the, the IP community sort of segmented the way it should be. There's patent attorneys and then there's trademark and copyright attorneys. People have their specialties. Mm -hmm. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Makes sense. And some people do both. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But there wasn't this um, this feeling of, oh, you're not an engineer. Oh, you don't have a technical degree. Well, then you can't be a trademark attorney. Mm. And so people were very welcoming of my background. They understood my background. They saw a lot of value in my background, clearly, mm -hmm. because I, I, I was their client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was the thing that, that really resonated with me during our conversation, mm -hmm. that you are coming from it with the background on both ends. Right. Um, I mean, it's really, really under, uh, important to be able to understand your client. Right. You know, and uh, understand, get yourself in their mind, in, right. their, in their shoes. So you have that. Um, do you have any specific stories that you can share where that really sets you apart from the other people? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is the kind of story you're looking for, but I landed my first client three months into my legal career. Not wow. because I was a great attorney. I still didn't know anything really about the law, mm -hmm. but because, and it was, you know, it was my aunt at, you know, some church picnic who ran into this woman. She was formulating her own cosmetics line and she mm. was telling her about me. And this lady ended up calling me and we had a conversation. And I'm sure I didn't wow her with my legal expertise, but I made her feel comfortable. Right. Because That's so important. I understood what she was trying to accomplish. And I gave her the peace of mind that, you know, at my firm, we could absolutely help her yeah. and we could protect her brand and we could help her do what she wanted to do. And, you know, I got off the phone with her and I walked into my partner's office and I said, I just landed a client. And my partner looked at me like I was nuts. She goes, what do you mean you just landed a client? And I said, I... I, I need to send her an engagement letter. And I had no idea how to do that. Hmm. I didn't know how to do any of that. I mean, I think I had been at the firm. I started there in February, and I think this was like right before Memorial Day. Wow. Um, but again, it wasn't because I was an exceptional lawyer. It was because I understood how to talk to this woman, how to make her feel comfortable. And that's something that I still to this day teach young lawyers that um, – our clients for what we do, we're not, we're not bailing people out, right? We're not mm -hmm. defending people of DUIs. Yeah. No one's being accused of murder, right? I mean, what we do in helping people grow their brands, protect their brands, if someone gets a cease and desist letter that their name is similar to someone else's, that is very concerning. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we don't cure cancer, right? Mm -hmm. No one's being yeah. accused of a crime. Our clients have business issues. Mm. And so it's so important to understand their business to the best of your ability. And everyone's going to have a different learning curve on that. Definitely. But our clients don't have legal issues. They come to us with a business question, a business issue. And our job as intellectual property lawyers is to offer a legal solution mm -hmm. to their business issue. Guidance. Right. Mm -hmm. No one calls us up. I don't care where you work. If you work at one of the largest law firms in the world or if you're at a solo or small firm like I operate now, no one calls us up and says, oh, my gosh, I have the most serious burning legal question. No, they don't. Right. They yeah. call you up and say, someone just sent me this really scary letter. Do I really have to change my name? 
What they're saying is because that would really suck for my business. Oh, yeah, that could be earth shattering. Yes, it's a huge distraction. It's costly. And what in the world are my customers going to think? How will they find me tomorrow if I have to change my name? That's really what's at stake. Mm -hmm. That's what that means. So we have to use our legal experience and know-how to figure out, well, do they really have to? Mm-hmm. Is there, what's, the, what's the answer most of the well, time? Well, it depends. I mean, there is no clear-cut answer. It depends. Okay. It, it's so fact-specific. Yeah, um, of course, yeah. Uh, some, I mean, a lot of the time, the answer is yes, if, <laughs> especially if they haven't you know, done their due diligence up front, if they haven't done a search. But sometimes, a lot of times, the answer is no, that sometimes you know, they are just they just get some ridiculous letter on the other side of someone just beating their chest yeah. trying to scare them it really is so fact intensive mm-hmm. but you can't you you can't evaluate that on your own you really need to talk to someone who has specialty in that area well yeah i mean it's it's something that is not uh, it's not something you want to play around with and take the chance i mm-hmm. would imagine it's worth Spending the money to make sure that it's done right. Well, or at least talking to someone so mm. you you can make an informed decision. Right. I mean, and the other thing that I love is I get calls all the time from uh, small business business people, and they say, "Yeah, so I just got this letter from X Y Z big company. I mean, they can't make me stop." And I say, "Oh, great. Well, it sounds like you got this all sorted <laughs> out." And I say, "And um, is this the second, third, or fourth letter you got from that big company?" And then I can hear the wheels turning, like, get out of my head. Yeah. And they go, well, it's the third. I mean, I just threw the other ones away. And I go, how's that working out for you? Did the letter stop because you threw it away? Yeah. The letters are not going to stop. They're going to keep sending the letters. If you ignore them, they are going to file a lawsuit. Hmm. So you don't want to monkey around, especially if you're getting a letter from a big company. Um, I know it seems scary, and I know it seems like if you just bury your head in the sand, it will go away, but it won't go away. You yeah. you definitely wanna wanna call someone, and it, it may it it may be that it can be distinguished, or it may be that you know you just have to um, you just have to bite the bullet. Now this is a, a an interesting part of this uh, conversation. Uh, I, I what I want to hear is both sides of it because i know that there's a lot of people that will just send letters out they'll just send letters out to get you to stop to scare you and there's nothing behind it and they never actually sue you um but then there are the ones where it's earth shattering and it shuts you down do you have um any stories that you could point to where somebody like you said ignored the letter let it go too far and then got ruined or do you have anything like that i don't know that i have anything anything like that because they called you uh, no, not always. <laughs> not always. Um, I, I don't know that I, I know of any examples off the top of my head where, where that happens. But, um, you know, there can be ethical issues, too, if people just send letters out and don't don't intend to follow up. I mean, look, there are trolls yeah. Oh, yeah. In, in every facet of IP, patent trolls, copyright oh, yeah. trolls and 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 uh, and trademark trolls. But Usually, if someone has a good faith belief that that there's something behind it, they're not meaning to just you know scare the bejesus out of you. And usually, um, if you don't respond, they'll usually send you know two or three letters you know before they they file a lawsuit. Um, but they usually will file a lawsuit if mm. you if you don't if you don't respond if you truly ignore them. And the goal here is not to try to uh, put someone in financial ruin. The goal is to try to get your attention with the lawsuit to bring you to the settlement table. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I educate a lot of small business owners, and the one thing I always say is, it, well, two things. Don't ever send your own cease and desist letter. Always confer with um, an IP attorney if you think someone is infringing your rights and mm-hmm. similarly, if you receive a cease and desist letter, don't panic. That's A. I mean, it, it, it could be that you do have to make some adjustments, but there could be arguments where it, it isn't an issue. I can give you an example, a patent attorney that I work closely with. One of his clients received a cease and desist letter, mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't that there was no basis for it. I can understand from the 
lawyer who sent the cease and desist letter where they were coming from, but they were a little, um, they were taking some liberties with the law. Hmm. And so um, my point back to my colleague was, I don't, I don't think that this is um, defendable. And I would write back and say that your client's use is not what we call trademark use. Hmm. So I think that, you know, either we can have a conversation about it, you know, we can go to court and argue about it, we can do a declaratory judgment, there's a lot of different things. My colleague is a, is a litigator, so, you know, he wanted to just march into court and, um, and try to fight it on, on declaratory judgment grounds. Most people don't do that because it's very expensive for the client. But just because someone objects doesn't mean that they're right. Mm-hmm. Right, so, of course. There's a lot of different ways to 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 look at it. And unfortunately, trademark law is just one of those areas of the law that is incredibly fact intensive. And sometimes it can straddle the line a little bit. One of the things that, that comes to mind is um, I, I have this example, which is uh, a podcast. OK. You know, um, a podcast. It, you don't have to file. You don't have to have a business entity. You don't have to file paperwork. All you have to do is come up with a logo, come up with a name, and and start doing it. Um, for the most part, that's what people do. When you start really making money and doing business, then you start doing uh, the business side of it. But um, it's it's a worldwide thing. Where does the law uh, uh, end with that? Well, so there's two things, and you bring up you bring up a great point. You don't ever have to have a registered business. Mm for anything that you're doing. And secondly, you're not required to register your trademark at the USPTO to have trademark rights. It's just a use, right? Exactly. In this country, we have something called common law rights. So as Mm -hmm. soon as you start using something, it has to be used as a trademark, though. And this is what confuses people all the time. Your business name is not necessarily a trademark. Yeah, people operate as, as, you know, a DBA. Well, yes, but just because, so I give this example all the time when I teach, right? Mm -hmm. So your business name could be Stephen Stacy, our best friends, Inc., right? It could be a holding company Mm -hmm. for many different types of brands, right? Uh, The example I like to give is look at SC Johnson um, and Sons or Procter and Gamble. Yes, yes. Right? Even even though P&G arguably is its own brand that's not the entity the entity is procter and gamble company Mm -hmm. under the procter and gamble company we have many different brands we have charmin we have tide we have oil valet right we have Mm -hmm. all of these wonderful brands that procter and gamble has brought to us when you go up north and look at sc johnson we have raid we have fantastic we have off we have glade all of these brands those are the brands right Mm -hmm. so under this fictitious company that you've just formed stacy and steve our best friends inc right you could be operating a podcast you could be operating a restaurant you could be operating all sorts of different things if those if those things that you're doing are branded Mm -hmm. with a trademark and or a logo then those are your trademarks as long as you're using them trademarks are territorial both in in geographic scope and according to the goods and or services for which they're used. So if you have a podcast that is branded and someone else is using that name, let's say for laundry detergent, the two can coexist. Mm -hmm. The example Mm -hmm. that I often use is Delta. We have Delta faucets Mm -hmm. and we have Delta Airlines. That is a very good uh, example. The reason they coexist and both are on the register of the United States Patent and Trademark Office is no one is going to step foot on a Delta airline, right, on a Delta plane and say, damn it, I thought I was coming into the, you know, Home Depot to buy a Delta faucet. You're not going to be confused. Mm -hmm. Likely confusion is the standard. Now, there are are exceptions to that rule, and the exception is for famous marks. Famous marks, that's a doctrine in the Trademark Act. Famous marks have to be proved. They have to be litigated. Starbucks, for instance, is one of those marks. It has been deemed famous. So, even though Starbucks is registered for coffee and retail store services selling coffee, you can't 
um, launch a brand of Starbucks or anything stim- similar like Starbuck right. for cheese mm-hmm. or for um, gym shoes. Same thing with Nike, by the way. Um, but mm. there are so there are exceptions now. Going back to the geographic nature, there is no such thing as a worldwide trademark. Yeah, that that was another thing that I was going to ask about yeah. the, the you know the copyright infringement overseas. And right. How does that play into this whole equation? So, um, unless you're a huge global company, right? So, four huge global companies, which mm. is what I've spent the majority of my career um, uh, working on, those multinational corporations, they have trademark registrations in each and every country of the world. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. I've represented some of the largest brands on the planet, and I've worked in more than 150 countries around the world. Why? Because you have to enforce them in every country, right? Exactly. It's all separate. Exactly. So even though if people listening out there um, have trademarks and have registered them in countries outside of the United States, they may be confused because we have this um, office called the World Intellectual Property Organization based in Geneva, Switzerland. Okay. They do not handle worldwide trademark registrations. It is a clearing office for international trademarks. Okay. But still, you need to have a trademark you should consider and again it's it's not for everyone because it's expensive that's another thing so when is it right for you to go through that process when you are either producing product in another country like you're a manufacturer and you have a co-packer mm-hmm. production facility say in China or you intend to sell in another country. Right. So when you get ready to expand, right? So say you're selling clothing here in the United States and you intend to expand uh, into Canada or into Mexico. Right. Now, just because you're online and you have clients who are buying from you in other countries, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to rush out and get a trademark because mm-hmm. this is right. expensive business. Trademarks have to be renewed usually every 10 years every country has a different mm, yeah. um a, a different term and it's a different fee for every country uh yes <laughs> yeah that's that's a, a, a it's, crazy amount of money i'm sure that it gets to very very expensive and you know you have to police infringement yeah um you know you have this duty to to police so it's that's not, part of it too isn't it yes so what happens if you go through the the whole process and you just let them let them go with it in China or whatever. Uh, you can lose your rights. You lose it. Yeah. So you wow. Yeah. So you actually are forced. So it's it's another thing. You're forced to actually spend more money on fighting things to keep your pet. Yeah. I mean, and so that that's why when when people call me and they say, so I'm being bullied. I got this cease and desist letter. Well, you're not being bullied. Trademark owners have an affirmative duty to enforce their rights. That doesn't mean you have to uncover every stone to find infringement. Mm -hmm. But if you become aware of something, right, if something's brought to your attention, even if you're just a a moderately sized company, if if you have a sales force and they bring something to your attention and you don't investigate it, you can lose your trademark rights if you if you don't police your mark. China's yeah. the Wild West still. I mean, yeah. China. China's a really difficult market, and enforcement is really expensive. Yeah. Unfortunately, so I, you know, all of this needs to be taken into account as you're growing your business um, and setting aside a budget. I had a little bit of a of a debate with a small business owner on my LinkedIn page earlier this week. Okay. Clearly something had happened to him and he's like he's like the whole system is rigged. Courts uh, only give awards to uh, people with money and small business owners just can't get ahead and I'm like, "Look, clearly something has happened to you, but yeah. judges do not make decisions based on who has more money." They follow, mm. they follow the law. There certainly are some inconsistencies. Sure, there's I, examples of everything. Absolutely, I'm not mm. at all here to say that, that every time I read an opinion, I go, wow, that one was decided well, because <laughs> that doesn't happen. But right. to, to infer that decisions are made based on the size of a plaintiff or defendant's bank account is asinine. Mm-hmm. So clearly something happened to him, but I think he's missing the bigger point that um, unfortunately... 
trademark owners have a right to police, but the flip side of that, and I talk to my small business owner clients about this all the time, yeah, it probably isn't the right time for you to dip your toe into the trademark pool if you have zero money to enforce. Right. Now we can triage, we can figure out what makes sense, um, but you really don't want to send a cease and desist letter if you don't have the budgetary resources to back it up. Now, what happens when you do that? What happens if you if you go and don't follow your advice and start sending letters to people? What what happens? Um, I mean, th they they may test you. I mean, a lot of times. I mean, especially if if the person you're the recipient of that letter is represented by counsel, they may tell you just to go pound sand the first time around just to mm -hmm. see if you're serious. I mean, you look like a, you lose all credibility if you can't back it up. Right. Um, when I when I discuss with what I discuss with my clients before we send a cease and desist letter is okay. So what are we willing to do? Mm -hmm. What is our budget? What if they come back and say you know go pound sand? Mm -hmm. Like what mm -hmm. if they send us you know a letter back that basically says f you? Then what? Yeah. I mean if you if you start getting a reputation for just sending letters and not backing them up. That people are going to um, stomp on your IP rights everywhere, and that's a problem. Yeah. So yeah. you want to be, you want to be, you don't want to be the little boy who cried wolf, right? You want to send letters that when it, yeah. when it really makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and this goes for for big clients as well. I mean, look, bigger clients are just like smaller clients. I know small clients don't think that. Large multinational client um, companies are the same. Mm -hmm. It's just they have thousands, tens of thousands of people after them all the time. Right. Um, but they also have to. Um, they also have budgetary limits. They don't have unlimited resources, mm -hmm. and so we would have to triage and figure out how to spend money all the time. Yeah. Now, and there's no clear. Uh, this is going to cost this amount, right? I mean, well, it's... I mean, it depends. But no, when you're talking about litigation or pre-litigation, it's very difficult to know because you never know what the other side's going to do. Right, right. Yeah, that. that I mean, that's. Uh, it's so scary. It's diff It's difficult, and uh, you know, I'll tell you the the other thing that's e even scarier is the whole the whole counterfeit issue. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when you deal with with counterfeit goods and anti-counterfeiting strategies. Um, I mean, there's just th those people are so evil and so awful, and they take such advantage of companies, um, especially large brand owners. Yeah. And so much is at stake. Um, I know people think it's no big deal, and you know, thank God they're sticking it to the man. Well, they're sticking it to all of us because yeah, the prices go up on everything. That's just that's exactly right. And if you think about it, whether you're intentionally buying counterfeit goods or you're not aware that you're buying counterfeit goods, if you buy something that isn't performing as you expect, who are you going to complain to? <laughs> right. You're going to complain to the the company that owns that brand. So it becomes a PR nightmare. They have to hire more people. Um, and eventually, that's all going to come back in, in, and be reflected in their price. But right. when you buy counterfeit goods, you're, you're basically funding um, terrorism and child labor, and these people don't pay taxes. I mean, of course. This, is, this is the worst of the worst. And so trying to find these people is incredibly difficult mm -hmm. for, for brand owners. And, um, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole. It's very, yeah. very difficult to shut these people down. Mm -hmm. And um, I can imagine multi-millions of dollars um, are spent every year trying to, to find these people and do raids and, you know, uh, in China and Nigeria and, you know, Turkey and India and all the hot spots of, of counterfeit goods. It's, um, it's a really, really, really difficult yeah. Issue for brand owners. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, it's a worldwide problem. Definitely. Um, bringing it to the United States. Uh, there has to be some examples of that happening here. Oh, there is. I mean, so when one of the benefits, one of the benefits of being a registered, a federally registered trademark owner is if you are a purveyor of goods, mm -hmm. you can register your trademark with uh, Customs and Border Control. And so um, you know, you can have your, your goods stopped at the border 
Um, so I worked on a case when I was a young associate where um, we had like uh, computer computer parts or computer chips I can't remember now mm -hmm. that were stopped at the at the border and so you know but part of the issue is is that sometimes brand owners are hesitant to educate customs and that really shouldn't be the case because customs really is there to to help you and support you but you know they can't be experts in everything so you right. you really have to work in tandem with them and, and educate them but um, it is ridiculous the the amount of uh, product that comes in every day. the The issue now, though, is is that so much um, is shipped through the mail. Right. I was going to say this this whole thing. I mean, we're not necessarily talking about um, just trucks of things, uh, yeah. you know, shipments of one thing anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's becoming a challenge for 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 customs now. So. Um, which, and what are they going to do? I mean, if you have... It's difficult. It's really difficult. <laughs> How are they going to know, right? It's really difficult, So, which is why it's so it's so incumbent on Amazon. I mean, that's why you have big brands pulling out of Amazon now. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of garbage, fake stuff. Yeah. A lot of and stuff. And it's their reputation. Mm -hmm. It's truly their reputation. Um, so, yeah, you brought up a good point with Amazon in particular, because there there's so many um, things. One of the... One of the campaigns that they're doing right now is that it's not Amazon selling you these products. It's the small business owners on Amazon. Yeah. So that's like the part of their branding now. Maybe that's qual maybe that's uh, damage control. Actually, I think they're trying to protect themselves a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Uh, for that exact reason, now that I think of it. Uh, but w what they do is you don't know what you're getting. You don't know where it's coming from. Um, they they slap the Amazon logo on it and it's trusted. It could be poison. Who knows? There's plenty of things. I just got something in the mail um, the other day. I, I had a supplement that I was taking and um, I got a, a email from Amazon and the FB, FDA saying that this was recalled because of man, manufacturing inconsistencies, which I took a whole bottle of this stuff um, and that happens, you know, and it's you should be very careful with supplements and vitamins and all those types yeah. of things. Buying that, look, we have become the convenience, you know, generation, right? Mm -hmm. We we want it all. We want it all, you know, within. We want it all delivered via Prime. Yeah. And you know, we don't want to go out to the store anymore. But um, supplements, vitamins, all those types of things, um, they can be very dangerous to purchase on yeah. Amazon. So. Uh, when I give presentations on counterfeit goods, people are usually really shocked to learn that uh, counterfeit prescription drugs, mm -hmm. about a third of them in the world, are um, counterfeit prescription drugs. We're not so affected by them here in the United States, but in Africa, for instance, about 60-70% yeah. of prescription drugs are counterfeit. And so the issue is, is that either um, they have no active ingredient or too much active ingredient. So, I mean, think about it, right? If yeah. you need a prescription drug to, you know, cure whatever is wrong with you and it it's just a placebo, mm -hmm. I, I mean... You're killing people. Exactly. Yeah. So, w when I give that presentation, people are usually just astounded. But yeah. and think about other, um, other areas like aftermarket motorcycle parts or car parts. Yeah. If something is wrong with that part, it's a safety issue. Yeah, yeah. So you have you have a lot of manufacturers. Harley Davidson, who's not my client, has never been my client, but they um, do a really great job in um, trying to really uh, crack down on counterfeiters. Um, and there have been a number of articles in in attorney trade magazines written about how they yeah. how they go after people, but they judiciously sue because it's expensive, but mm -hmm. they go after big fish. And a, a few years ago, they got a really, really big judgment. Mm -hmm. And so they use that right for all of their other cease and desist letters to try to be intimidating, to try to get compliance, because their brand is very valuable. And they also know that counterfeit aftermarket parts can truly hurt people. And they're concerned about that. They don't, yeah. they don't want that to happen on their watch. And there's other, um, you know, BMW has been very successful in suing people. Again, that's a, another brand that's really concerned about their reputation. So um, it's it's a it's a real concern. Um, you know, aftermarket airplane parts. I mean, can you imagine? I, I it's scaring me it's, just to think about it's it scary. because because they don't catch it all. Right. 
yeah. that's that's a scary thing to think about. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't think that they ever will. They're never going to catch it all, because, like you said, it's whack-a-mole, and um, that I guess is part of. I mean, it's outside of. I get now we're just talking about being scared, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, why, I guess that's why it's important to have people like you, uh, to, to make these things uh, safer across the board, you know, to, to protect, uh, the quality control yeah. and, you know, all that, um, for, and we've, we've already done an hour, but believe it or not. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, but, uh, w I wanted to cover, uh, some other things. Okay. I wanted to, wanted to kind of, you know, cause we could talk about that for hours. Sure. You know? Uh, so, so getting back to what you currently do uh, for the small business owner, yeah. because you know th this is a huge, huge industry. Every brand yeah. has a need for these things, right? But a lot of times, you mentioned it. The small business owner thinks, well, they either can't afford it, or it's not for them. That's for the big, you know, P and G and all right. that. At what time is it important? for a small business owner to contact somebody like you? Thank you, that's a great question. It's one of the reasons why I opened up my own firm um, because I think that a lot of small business owners think that they just can't afford an attorney for issues like this, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's just out of their reach. Um, so I think the right time is when when a small business owner is forming a business and they, they know that they're really going to differentiate their business based on marketing, that they really want to have a brand, mm -hmm. um, that they maybe want to have a logo, but that the brand is distinctive, right? That they're just not going to be Joe's Auto Shop. There's nothing wrong with being Joe's Auto Shop. That's right. great. Mm -hmm. But I can't help that person, right? So they want to have a cool um a cool brand name that was really going to position themselves different from their competitors. Mm -hmm. They don't have to have a, a real point of differentiation, meaning they don't have to have something unique about their business in terms of that it's patentable as an invention, just that they've created a marketable point of differentiation. If they've done that and they have an interesting name, mm -hmm. that's the time to come see someone like me to pick up the phone and call someone like me and we can do a search on on the name um, also if they're launching a new product or a new service line again with an interesting and unique name that's the time to talk to someone like me um, so that's preventative then as we sort of talked about throughout if god forbid they get a letter from someone saying hey your name's a lot like my name and you need to stop using your name mm -hmm. Don't panic. Certainly don't just give in, but, you know, give someone like me a call or God forbid if they get sued and they get a summons, mm -hmm. you know, don't feel like you have to go through that alone. Call someone like me, call an intellectual property attorney and find out what your options are. Right. You don't just want to default on on a on a case like that you want to you want to see what your options are absolutely um so th those are those are the ways usually and we can we can search the name we can figure out if it's truly available we can help you register it and um you know just figure out what what options you have available it's look is it um is it cheap no but is it expensive no, okay. it's not. The expensive part, as we were talking about, is what do you do after the certificate of registration? Mm -hmm. How do you enforce it? And someone like me um, can help you make sure that you're using it properly so that you have the protection that you need. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. it's an incredibly nuanced area, as I hope we've kind of demonstrated today. It's not just, oh, well, the USPTO is online. I'll do it myself. Um, it's probably not going to work out real well for probably you. Probably not smart to, to yeah. just wing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and so you are actually working with newer lawyers. You're, you just launched, launched something recently. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, thanks. So I, um, lawyers have to do a lot of continuing education to keep our licenses current. So I do a lot of educating to other lawyers, um, and I like to share sort of practical tips. But one of the things that I noticed was missing in the market was um, 
a way for newer lawyers who really had an interest in trademark law to get a good understanding of all of the rules and regulations in this area mm-hmm. and feel that they could um, get up to speed on all of the rules and regulations and also have a practical application because I came through the system in a very unique way coming in from the business side. So I launched a trademark academy for lawyers mm-hmm. um, to help educate and mentor younger lawyers and for those especially who don't have a support system of going into a big firm or they work at a small firm or they might be the only trademark attorney in their firm or they uh, hang up their own shingle to have a support system. So I launched a trademark academy. It's an online trademark academy to help take them through our rule book and some of the practical tips and strategies in helping to guide clients. Like we talked about earlier, just explaining to them, right, that, you know, our clients have business issues, right? Mm -hmm. And they're looking to us for a legal solution. So don't give them big, long legal, you know, research papers. Clients don't like that, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like that. You'd be like, what is this? I don't know what to make of this. Just it needs to be relatable and understandable. Yeah, Just help me understand what it is that I need to do. So just kind of being a a mentor for them and, and helping to give them a toolbox of resources that, that can help them be successful in their own practice. And that is, uh, called Trademark Abilities? Yes. That's the name of the Trademark Academy. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, I'm sure, you know, if anybody's listening that is looking to learn more about this, they can go to TrademarkAbilities.com and uh, also reach out to you. What's uh, the best phone number to call you at? So my office phone is 708-320-2033. Okay. And, uh, you know, for any questions that you have, uh, I'm sure that if you don't handle it, you could point people in the right direction. Absolutely, That's a big thing. A lot of times just reaching out to somebody that kind of um, knows the lay of the land is yeah. very helpful. And uh, to learn more about uh, Stacy and uh, uh, what she does, check out her main website. That's KLOlegal.com. Yes. Right? Yes. And uh, is there anything that you would like to leave um, the audience with, a uh, word of advice or anything like that? Uh, um, no, I mean, we, we had such a great conversation. I think to your point, I have a really uh, strong network of attorneys in, in all um, practice areas. So absolutely. I mean, feel free to reach out at any time. If, if I don't personally handle the, um, the question, I'm happy to find someone who does. Absolutely. Well, it's a real pleasure. Like I said, these things go by so fast. There's, there's uh, never enough time to cover it. But Um, I know your time is valuable, so um, I definitely appreciate everybody uh, tuning in. Definitely give her a call if there's anything that she can help you with, and um, we'll be seeing you again soon. Thanks. Thank you, Steve.